Again, please let yourself get settled. And before Rin Shinkando speaks, um, I have a couple of little stories to tell, if I may, um, and a couple of questions to ask that maybe will thread in what you have to say to us. And, and the, the stories and the questions um, connect in many ways to the work that you've dedicated yourself to for, for so many years. Um, so Rinchen Kondo has been um, a cabinet minister. She is the sister-in-law of the Dalai Lama. She has been head of the Tibetan Children's Village, which has taken children who don't have parents in, in, in the diaspora in exile in India and raised them. And one of the questions I'll ask is, what makes the Tibetan children there so happy? Because it's a kind of extraordinary thing to see in that circumstance the joy that the Tibetan children have both there and in general in Tibet. Um, but one of the things that you've dedicated yourself and your life to, um, and the nuns are, are a part of it, is the preservation of the best of Tibetan culture with the invasion of the Chinese army and the destruction of the temples and still the great oppression um, that doesn't allow the Tibetan people to practice their religion and culture um, and now it's been more than half a century. Um, part of the flame of keeping that alive has been the um, responsibility of the educated and um, uh, Tibetans in exile like yourself. Um, and it's, uh, it's a task for you, for the people of Tibet, but in some way also for the world, because there are gifts that everyone knows that are carried um, in the culture of the Tibetan people the Dharma gifts and the understandings of a way of living and being in the world that the world desperately needs. Um, and part of that, you know, along with all the education and so forth, and a, another question is, you know, you, you've, been, you've been working with education, just to keep this in mind, um, is, is a shift from a, an ancient way of being to, moder to the modern world with it there are blessings, but there's also a great loss, as everyone knows. Um, and one of the key things you've been doing is to empower women. Not just to empower women as nuns, which you'll see in these beautiful ways, but really to change the, the vision and the role um, of women uh, within Tibetan society. I think they were always respected in a deep way, um, but to allow for a level of education and self-empowerment that hasn't been there. And so first I want to read a little passage from a a, a Buddhist text um, uh, that's one of my favorites. Ananda, who was the uh, attendant to the Buddha, they was, he was the Buddha's cousin and he was said to be um, uh, foremost in kindness of all the monks around the Buddha and also foremost in knowing what was suitable in tending to the Buddha and all those who came to visit. He was a kind of master of ceremonies. Um, he, he was kind of the master of graciousness. Um, Ananda, having been sent by the Buddha on a mission, passed by a poor village and seeing a young woman named Pakati near the well, who was an outcast, who was uh, um, untouchable at that time in the Hindu caste system, asked her for water to drink. And Pakati said, O monk, I am too lowly born to give you water to drink. Do not ask any service of me, lest your holiness 
be contaminated, for I am of the untouchables. And if you can imagine being born in a caste where even your shadow is something that people recoil at, or and what that would do, talk about self-esteem for the moment. Um, and Ananda replied, I ask not for caste, but for water, please. And the woman's heart leapt joyfully, and she gave Ananda water to drink. And Ananda thanked her and went away, but she followed him at a distance. And having heard that Ananda was a disciple of the Blessed One of the Buddha, she went to him and said, Help me, let me live in the place where your disciple Ananda dwells, so that I may see and minister to him, for I have come to love Ananda. You know, things always get a little complicated in these things, right? <laughs> but the Blessed One, the Buddha, understood the emotions of her heart and said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own emotions. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness and compassion. Accept then the kindness you have seen him practice toward you and practice it toward others. And though you are born of the lowest caste, you will be a model for noble men and noble women. Swerve not from the path of justice and righteousness that I see within you, and you will outshine the glory of the kings of this and queens of this land. And I read it, I don't know if you know this text, but it's a very beautiful text, um, because in some ways it's really the work that you've dedicated yourself to, to seeing, not just outcast, but Buddhism has been pretty patriarchal in the monastic tradition. I shouldn't say pretty patriarchal. It's been really patriarchal. <laughs> it's been tough for women for the last couple thousand years with exceptions. We were talking about Korea, and um, Rinchen Kondo told me this story of how when the, under the oppression, um, I guess it was in the Second World War or maybe before, in the last century uh, of the Japanese occupation of Korea that they killed or destroyed a lot of the m monks and monasteries and a group of nuns hid in the mountains and kept their trainings and practices going quite secretly for years and years and then when the Japanese left the nuns came out and they were the ones that ordained and instructed the, the, the monks and the men and brought the light of the Dharma back to that country. So, so she's been doing that and here's the only other story I want to tell. It's fun. I, um, we had a meeting, a series of meetings with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Dharamsala to bring teachers together from the West and from um, Asia um, to talk about the, the, the blessings but also the difficulties of bringing Dharma teachings to modern world and to the West and new cultures and so forth and all kinds of issues of how teachers are to be held because um, in our earlier conversation, we were also talking about the need to, to see clearly, um, Rinchen Kondo was saying, that students must really look for themselves and not just take the Tibetan culture as some wonderful kind of gaga, mystical Shambhala thing, or whatever you might, and that it's all just beautiful. There's amazing parts, and then there are parts that you really have to see clearly, and think for yourself, and see for yourself. So, we're there talking about the problems, the way teachers uh, can succeed and also the way teachers and communities get lost or get in trouble. Um, and the issue of empowerment of women and nuns came up. And Ani Tenzin Palmo, a Western nun, um, very wonderful woman, talk, told His Holiness about how bad the conditions were in a number of nunneries where she had practiced. And it, as he listened, 
um, he said, I didn't know it was so bad in these particular monasteries. And he wept, as he does, with so much care. And then Sylvia Wetzel, who was a Dharma teacher from Germany, um, and who has, uh, I think the Sanskrit word for it is chutzpah. Um, <laughs> it's actually a Yiddish. Um, she said, Your Holiness, would you mind if I teach you a visualization practice? Now the whole room, you know, is all set up with great respect, and to have a Western woman stand up and want to teach the Dalai Lama was already a little dicey, right? But of course, His Holiness is very, very gracious, so he said, please, go ahead. So she said, I would like you and all, the, there was all these great lamas and high rimbaches around him, if you would please close your eyes for a moment. And here we were in, in his palace in this kind of living room with all these great paintings of, of um, masters and teachers of the past. And she said, close your eyes. Now I would like you to do a visualization in which you imagine that seated in the front of this room is the 14th Dakini Dalai Lama <laughs> who is born in feminine form and always comes back as a woman because the whim, woman's body is the best vehicle for expressing the depth of the Dharma of liberation. And she is surrounded by all the Rinpoches and Lamas who are also all women, because even though a male body is fine for enlightenment, it happens that all of the high teachers over the last thousand years have been born in women's bodies, and we just have to accept that, right? And then you look at all, you look with your eyes closed, you imagine all these great paintings of the arhats and bodhisattvas on the walls, and to your surprise, they are all in female form, offering teachings and uh, showing the path of the Dharma. But they say very clearly that there is a place for men in the Dharma, <laughs> although... Uh, their place is actually in the back of the room. We have plenty of room, and when the teachings are done, we would also like to ask if the men wouldn't mind going in the kitchen and helping a little with the cleanup there. And when she finished this visualization, I have to tell you, some of those lamas' eyes opened. They had never seen quite that. Um, but it was a beautiful moment, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama was, of course, completely entranced by it and said, you know, I want to do everything that I can to empower, to support women. And he said, Dalai Lama cannot do it alone. I need your help. I need the help of the Westerners. I need the help of the women in this room. I need the help of the Theravadans because we look to you, the, the countries of Burma and Thailand, as having very strict Vinaya, very strict monastic precepts. And if you do it, then you will help me and then we can do it there. <laughs> But actually the person that's doing it, even though His Holiness is very supportive, is sitting next to me here. Um, and it's a really wonderful thing to know in education and schools, empowering girls to learn to think for themselves, to see for themselves. Um, because that's a question too of education where you don't even ask questions, which was the old style of education. We had it too. You just copy down your slate. And now she's encouraging the young women and the nuns to, to really ask questions and to debate and to, to interact with their teachers. So I'll stop with that, but it's, it's really an honor to have you here. And I should say, tonight also, all the money that we collect from the c cars and the food and the, you know, you're coming in and so forth, and the great deal of money that you're going to put in the baskets as you leave, um, all is going to support the Tibetan Nuns Project, which you will now hear about more from her. So thank you. Should I speak now? Please. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
uh, as you all know, our country has been occupied by the government of China since 1959. And uh, in 1959, I came as a child to India. And I had the fortune of being educated in one of the good schools, for which I'm very grateful to my parents, who are no longer with me today. And ever since my time in the school and college, I always felt that I'm so lucky to be a free person in the free world, to be able to speak what I want to and do what I want to, compared to the rest of our people inside Tibet. Then I told myself, there is a purpose in being free, one of the free people from among six million Tibetans. So I must use this freedom that I have to benefit the people inside Tibet. So when I think back, I think even at the age, a very young age, I think, very, I, think I really cared for my people and the country. So anyway, I went to school, college, and heard and learned much about the world, including the UN. And I thought the United Nations organization was going to free Tibet tomorrow. But of course, it never happened. And then my respect for that organization also went down the hill. However, I really continued thinking uh, like that as a responsible Tibetan woman in exile. And then amongst, I mean, when His Holiness left the country, he was followed by around 80,000 Tibetans to India. And as soon as we reached in India, we set up the government in exile. And His Holiness, one of the first things His Holiness did was to draft the constitution for Tibet's future governing system, which he entirely based on democratic systems. And then also, he formed the government in exile with a parliament, cabinet, and a judiciary, which is why, as Jack said, I served the community as the education minister for nine and a half years. And this is not to say that we have a government of our own in India, because we are completely living under the rules and regulations and law of the gov uh, government of India. But we have the greatest appreciation for the government of India for allowing us to learn how to govern ourselves in the future. So within this, we have the different departments. And uh, one of the departments that I served for a short while was the Home Ministry, Health Ministry, and mostly in education. But before that, as Jack mentioned, I also had the privilege of reviving an association which was founded by the women inside Tibet on the 12th of March, 1959, who rose against Chinese occupation and said that this is our country and you have no right to be here. So we revived this in exile with respect to the women who lost their lives in doing that in Tibet in 1959. Hundreds of them were imprisoned, and most of them we never saw again. So anyway, the women in exile have kept this alive in respect for them, as well as as a responsibility of ourselves in exile 
for the country, for our culture, and for the people inside Tibet. So I had the privilege of serving that association as the president for three terms, which is nine, approximately nine and a half years. So during this time of working with the women, we had founded different branches all over India, Nepal, and in foreign countries where we, we had our people living. And all together, we had at that time, I remember, over uh, 37 branches. So this was in the, we, we revived this in 1984. And uh, it was this time when we had an audience with His Holiness and he said, I'm so happy that you have revived this association. I believe in the power of women. You can do a lot. And then at the same time, he also said, help the nuns also. So of course, at that time, we had to find our own way out. And then we got very busy in setting up the branches. And then, then of course, although we knew there were few nuns and we had to do something about them, but to get this support and moral encouragement from His Holiness was something that we could not forget. So we started looking into these nunneries and uh, the standard of living in the nunneries, the standard of education compared to the monasteries were like, if I may say this, like between hell and heaven. <laughs> anyway, it was really, really poor. And as you know, our monastic education is one of the most profound system of education today, but none of the nuns were really ever exposed to that one. Even in the free Tibet, nine, before 1959, they never had a system of education. So in exile, when, when everything was reestablished, the last ones were again the nunneries. And therefore, there were very few nunneries, and they were all very pure, poor. So we, start, we had to start from the scratch. But as the women's organization, we really took it on ourselves and said, we must do something about this as well. So we started looking after the nunneries, um, the, the, the nunneries that were there. But before we were really comfortable in doing that, we had this huge influx of nuns from Tibet. After Again, after going on a demonstration against the occupation of the Chinese government, there were most of them again imprisoned. And... Uh, Many of the nunneries in Tibet were empty because nuns were not allowed to go back to the nunneries. So as a result, many of them escaped from the Himalaya, through the Himalayas to India. And when they came to India, there were monks also coming, for which we are very, very happy. After all, monks are also Tibetans, and they're very much part of us. But the, but the lucky thing for them was that they could join the monasteries which were already established. They, sh they could just arrive in Dharamsala and they would ask which monastery you're going to. So they would go there and join. But the nuns, when they came, they had no nunneries to go. So it was in 1990 that a huge influx of, uh, 1989, that a huge influx of nuns came. And as the women's association members, I remember discussing, okay, I believe there's a huge number of them in Varanasi attending the Kala Chakra, and after that, they'll obviously come to Dharamsala. 
As for the monks, they'll go and join their monasteries, but where will these nuns go? So quickly we got ready and uh, we rented a, a, a rented a Indian house for them temporarily, and then we got busy trying to get things for them before they really came up to Dharamsala. Because one thing is to go and see the Dalai Lama and pour out all your problems and feel very good about it. But the practical thing is, after that, where will they go and stay? So we were, we were very eager about setting up a temporary place for them, which we did. And uh, they were all cramped in small places. And uh, of course, we had to deal with their not only not having anything, but uh, many of them were very bad. Uh, th their health was in very poor condition because of having come from Tibet for a long time on foot through the snows. And many of them had frostbitten uh, toes and eyes. And also many of them had injured kidneys because they were beaten very badly in the prisons. So all of a sudden we had all of these people and uh, we had to deal with, uh, with their health, with their ac accommodation and uh, what they're going to eat and so, forth, so on and so forth. But for a whole year, the women's association, the different branches of the women's association took care of their needs. And then within that, we were able to form the Tibetan nuns project. And through the project, we were able to contact our friends all over the world. And uh, very soon, we were able to raise sponsors for them. And through the help of the kind of sponsors, we were able to at least not to worry about what to feed them and uh, what to pay the teachers. So amidst all these difficulties, we always felt that it's not enough just to give a house and food and shelter, but they must also have a vision. And to give the vision is the best gift to humanity. And for women, I think it's especially important. So what we did was we quickly set up the classes and started teaching them. And uh, it's been a long way, long, long time. It's almost 23 years that I've been now involved with this one. And uh, we've been working not only in setting up two new nunneries, because there was no nunneries to, to send them to. So these two nunneries, out of these two nunneries, one of them is a non-sectarian nunnery because firstly, they were from all over Tibet and we couldn't afford to give different, nunnery, different nunneries to different nuns that came from different traditions. So I remember telling them, look, we are in exile. I don't have the means to give you all your own nunneries, but if you're willing to live together and learn together, I'm going to set up a nunnery which is of non-sectarian. And I said, actually, personally, I don't see any problem with it because the traditions came in later. When the Buddha lived, there was no different traditions. So if you are lucky to realize this, this is a great opportunity to live together and learn about all the traditions and be enriched all the more. So out of Everybody, out of all the nuns that had come there, 66 of them agreed to live together and learn together. Therefore, we have created, you will see, 
in a while, the nunnery, we have created the, this nunnery called Domaling, which is non-sectarian. But then at the same time, I personally don't have the right to say everybody become non-sectarian because different traditions are a great thing in the Tibetan community, and I see that in the West as well because we tend to get so divided by the traditions that we don't want to go and learn from another tradition, which in a way might be good, but in a way I see it as a handicap because all the traditions are there for us to be enriched. And okay, if you learn from different traditions, yet live harmoniously and sharing each other's knowledge, that'll be wonderful. But I don't think, I definitely don't think that the Tibetans are doing that because we are all in our own traditions so much. And I hope in the West that's not happening. I don't know. But anyhow, I do respect all the different traditions, and therefore there, there was a group of 20 nuns who came from the Nyingma tradition. Besides, they came from a nunnery, which is one of the oldest in Tibet, called Shuksep Nunnery. And besides, they have a lineage that was started by a woman uh, many centuries ago. So I asked them, how about you? Would you like to continue with your tradition, or would you also like to join? So they said, no, we would like to stay separately. So I respected that, and therefore I had to start looking and uh, preparing two nunneries. So myself, with the help of uh, Dr. Nepa, who's been with me from the very long ago, and many of our friends from all over the world, we've been working on these two infrastructures for the last 20 years. And today I'm very happy to share this with you, that we've been able to build the infrastructure not only that, through the course of time, we've been working on the system of education. As Jack mentioned, His Holiness has been extremely supportive of the education for nuns. And therefore, we've been able to set up a system of education which will allow them to get the degree equivalent to the geishas, which is the highest degree in the, in the Tibetan tradition. So in about two to three years' time, will have the nuns obtain that degree, which will, which will be the first time in the history of Tibet. And, uh, and, uh, and, 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 it's been a wonderful experience to see these nuns when they first came 99% of them didn't know how to read or write. And of course, their health was in tatters, and many of them suffered from trauma. So we have to deal with all of these, plus think about how to educate them. So it was a tremendous responsibility, but a great joy, because we were working for something very wonderful. And today, I'm so glad that me and our friends started this, and it has come to where it has. And today, not only that, we have the two nunneries entirely under our care, but other than that, we have other nunneries that we support, and uh, we have over 700 nuns under our care from different traditions. And every year, the nunneries, from all the nunneries, nuns come and debate, and we have an inter-nunnery debate competition. <laughs> 
again, this debate competition is very, very famous in Tibet, and this was only done by the monks, and now this is being done by the nuns in, in exile. And, uh, and it's very interesting when you start a new idea. It's difficult at the beginning, but if you do it well, people get used to the idea. And today, when the debate takes place, nobody really says anything. They only say, when is the debate taking place? So this is a great change from, oh, nuns are going to debate, <laughs> you know? So it's been a wonderful experience for us to work on this. And, uh, and we always say that, you know, our having lost the country in many, many ways is such a sad thing. But then, if we hadn't lost the country, maybe it would have taken much more time for this to develop. So anyway, this has developed in, in exile. And this is another aspect of learning how to live today instead of worrying about tomorrow, I mean, yesterday. Because had we not been doing these things and just worry about what's going to happen to us, when will Tibet be free? I think that would have been, life would have been so much more difficult if we had lived like that. So that's the Tibetan Nuns Project. And uh, we've come a long way. And we are also talking about the highest uh, ordination, which I'm sure many of you have heard about. The education part is more feasible, and it is almost there. But the ordination part is still in the path of uh, highest ordination, there's a lot, there's, there's many boulders which we have to work out and see how we can uh, do away with them. And, but I'm very positive that it will happen one day. And we are also in touch with the nuns of other traditions and uh, they're very, very supportive of the Tibetan nuns. And I think something wonderful will happen before long on that as well. And then, uh, yes, that's the Nuns Project. You will hear more about that as well. But since Jack has been telling you so much about the education of Tibetan children, I think I need to speak a little bit on this. You know, there's a little correction to be made. This Tibetan children's village is being run by my sister-in-law, who is the younger, uh, who is the sister of the of His Holiness. She, is she was directly in charge with the children's village, but I was in charge of all the schools in India, including Tibetan children's village. So that way, I have the authority to say a little bit on education, including TCV, Tibetan children's village. And uh, yes, the system of education, ordinary, I mean, the, the, uh, the normal education for lay children in India was also started as soon as we came to India. And His Holiness said, all the children must be sent to school. He never said, boys go to school and girls remain at home. So therefore, as a result of that wonderful advice, all the parents sent their children to school, which were totally taken care of by the government in exile. And so today, we have both men and women equally educated. And therefore, the women are able to also take responsibilities in different positions in, in, the, in different uh, walks of life, including in the government and NGOs. So the only little problem we had was in the nuns' education, and that also we've been able to now more or less solve it. Solve it. 
And now Jack was very kind to point out that the children were so happy in these schools, and I, I wonder how. Which many of our friends ask, because most of our children come from very poor backgrounds, and many of them don't have both the parents, many don't have one parent, so they come from all different kinds of backgrounds, and the school is their home. So in the homes, we try to create a small home. In the schools, we try to create a small home for them, and each home is looked after by two parents who are supposed to look after them as though they're their own children. So this way, I think it gives a sense of belonging to the children and also a sense of, sense of being loved and cared by people around you. So when the concept of boarding schools are uh, frowned on by many of our friends, they get very impressed by the boarding schools that we have. So I believe it's all because of the love and care these people give the children, uh, the people who look after the children. And also, again, His Holiness visits the schools from time to time, and he talks to them. And so they feel they're all children of His Holiness. So I think that also makes a lot of difference. That's then, a good father to have, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so we do have all these schools, and uh, modern education is given to them. But... This doesn't solve all our problems because we, as I was talking to Jack before, when you, when you give them religious teachings, we have to change our methods. When, we, when you educate the younger children, we have to change our methods because we are not only trying to educate these children and the nuns, but we are also trying to preserve our culture, identity, our language amidst all the other difficulties that you have. So it's doubly difficult for us, and therefore, I keep telling the teachers, we have to really look back and say how we did it that time worked. But now, the things have changed, so we have to change our methods. Therefore, even to the religious teachers that we have in the schools, I used to tell them, you are not to sit on the big thrones and just recite the scriptures, because that's not going to get the children anywhere. You sit with them, talk to them, let them ask questions, and discuss the Dharma. That's how you will get something into the children. Otherwise, the tradition, the form alone, will not be able to keep Tibet alive. So we are trying to change our methods, methods of educating, educating the children, and especially we are really trying to bring the Dharma to the level of lay people. I think it is very, very important. And most importantly, I think it's very important that you bring Dharma to the women. Not that it's not needed for the men, but because the women are always so much in touch with the family. And also, if the mother has a good sense of Dharma, it's bound to rub on the children more than the father, I think. Of course, if, if, they, both had the, uh, if they both had the education, there's nothing like that. But I think women will really make a, a lot of difference. And therefore, I have given, after having worked with the Women's Association, Education, Home, and Health Department, I have given for the last 23 years, I've never let the Nuns Project go out of my sight. 
because I feel that that is very important. And through these nuns, I hope that we'll contribute something to make, to, to make Dharma alive in the community and in the larger family in, of the world. May, so, may I ask you a question? When you say that you want to bring Dharma to lay people, that it was held more in the monasteries, and this was true in Burma and Thailand as well, until this recent century where a whole series of retreat centers and teachings blossomed for lay people. What is the, what, what is the Dharma principles that guide education? What is the Dharma that's been important to you or, or that you think is important, the Buddhist teachings that's most important for women or for families to learn? I think the concept, concept of altruism is very, very important, that you live for others, you help each other, and then compassion. Because as you said earlier, what better place to practice that than in your own family, or in your own community, or in your own workplace? In the temples and meditation centers, we can all be very good. <laughs> but the challenge is when you are with your children, or your spouse, or in the workplace, you're always, you know, how dare you say that? How dare you do this? Mm -hmm. So I think... Uh, that's important. And then, of course, along, along with that, patience. Hmm. Patience with wisdom is so important. And anyway, that's, these have been my guideline in life. I don't have much of a Dharma education, nor do I go to many, too to many teachings. But uh, these, have, these concepts have given me the guideline, and uh, it has helped me a lot. And I see them not only in your work, but I do see them in the people in Tibet when I go um, and spend time in the Tibetan communities as it grows, that the spirit of altruism, of compassion, the bodhisattva uh, sense of the, the sense of dedication for other, the welfare of other beings is so woven into the culture. But to keep it alive in modern times when all the kids are now getting their iPhones or whatever they get and, you know, th we're now in an electronic culture, mm -hmm. how do you keep um, the Dharma values alive when the modern world is also sweeping through your community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, uh, you know, to keep Dharma <laughs> values alive and also to keep culture alive. So during my last time, last few years in the education department, I used to talk to my colleagues and say, what do you think is our culture? What do you think is Dharma? Because when it's an auspicious day, everybody, all Tibetans go in the Tibetan costume, all the monks go in their best robes, they go into the temples, they light their butter lamps and all of this. I think this is very external. So these external forms are easy to perish because how are we going to tell a teenager today wear Tibetan costume all the time? They're going to get into jeans and they're going to copy the movie stars, and it's impossible. So what I get down is culture is within you. You have to culture yourself from inside so that it lives forever. Similarly, in the Dharma sense, you get the Dharma values and make it part of your life every day, whether you're alone or with people or wherever you are, so that, uh, you know, in spite of all the modern developments, maybe you'll be able to retain it better. This is what I hope we'll be able to do. Other than that, there's really no way. 
And then the other thing is we are always, when we say children and education and future, we are always looking down to the children. But then I think it has to start with us, the adults, because children learn so much from the adults that if we set them a good example, I don't think we have to even teach them much. They will follow us. And then when we say adults, it's everybody in the business, in the government, everybody. Because unless everything changes, how can a group of people try to change the country? You can't change. So I think it really is very important that these values become part of all of us. For example, in this country, from Washington, D.C. to everywhere else, so that the world can be a better place to live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it very um, then it does become a responsibility as you as you practice yourself. If you practice virtue or integrity or compassion or uh, or a mindfulness that's not filled a mind that's not filled with uh, hatred and so forth, then the requirement is to take this out into the society and the world that in some way they can't be separated. And hopefully, that your practice then illuminates the the country and the people around you in some way. Not by becoming a Buddhist, but really by yes. living from... And that's what we were talking about as well. It's not really the outer form, as you're exactly. saying, or a new costume, but really by what you carry in your heart. In a, in and then the other thing is, I think we always, we are all in need of teachers. We want to learn from the teachers. But we also have the responsibility to learn from the right teachers. And then I think the Buddha has given us the right to see whether she or he is really teaching or practicing what he or she is teaching. So I think this is very important for all of us. I mean, in my community, I keep telling this, and uh, maybe some of the monks don't even like me, but I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't mind, because they don't like me, I don't care. But uh, this is very important, because after all, in your country, you have, you know, you all have such sound educational backgrounds, and you have so many books to read. So use your intelligence and choose correct teachers. And also, you know, we've been in exile for so long, and through the, through the, uh, what do you call through the message of His Holiness. Everybody likes the Tibetans and everybody almost thinks that we are all almost like His Holiness. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely not. There's a big difference. You know, we are as human as anybody. And I would rather you take us as one of you than somebody special because that creates a lot of confusion. If you are not special, and you, if you are considered special, and then you begin to act like special, <laughs> and that act becomes very artificial. So I think it's very important for us all to really select the right teacher. And as Jack said, we don't have to be Buddhist. I, I, don't, I even tell the nuns, you don't have to remain as nuns all your life if you don't want to. But for heaven's sake, be true to yourself. If you're not going to be a nun, you come to me and say you're not going to be a nun anymore. Grow your hair, put makeup, dress as you like, but don't pretend to be a nun. 
So I think it's very important for us to be true to ourselves. And it uh, doesn't really matter which religion you follow, but whichever suits you, whichever gives you some joy, happiness, and uh, whichever teaches you moral ethics, I think that's more important. So perhaps we could see some images, um, um, Betsy, would you do that, um, of, of the nunneries and the, the projects and the inspiration that's come from all this beautiful work. Um, and then if there's time, we'll have some time for questions. So what we'd like to do is give you a quick visual recap of what you've been hearing. Um, as Rinchen Kandrala said, we started really in earnest 20 years ago, and we had this large group of nuns and no place to put them. Um, this is two of those nuns standing in the courtyard of where they live now. Okay. Nope, there we go. So. We're just starting with Tibet, and uh, I'll give you that one. It's a little bit recalcitrant, this. We'll, um, Tibet has been un was under brutal repression. This in amazing environment and amazing culture was under brutal repression for from the 1959 till the early 80s. Uh, there had been more than 6,000 monasteries, and in the early 80s, only 8 or 10 were still standing. Then there was some allowing of religious practice again, and this is something, this is a Buddha along the road to Lhasa. If anyone, many people have been to Tibet, and this is one of the first things you see. That kind of practice is allowed again. Um, people are allowed to turn prayer wheels, to say prayers, none of those things had been allowed, but real study still isn't happening. Freedom to practice freely is not there. Hmm. I'm hitting the arrows. It's every now I think it sat a little too long today. There we go. So this is a sample of what's been rebuilt and uh partially rebuilt. So a lot of things were allowed to be put back, but this had actually seven monasteries within it, and now only one of them is there. The stupa is very important and central, but again, the stupa is an object of worship. The monasteries were the places of study. So this is a typical nunnery in Tibet, and those have often been rebuilt as they were because they were small to start with. And what Tibet had was a tradition of women studying and practicing and meditating, but what they didn't have was study. Uh, however, uh, they've been able to rebuild those sites where they could still practice and study. There have been many very realized women practitioners, but without the teaching, without the verbal knowledge to communicate what they know, they were very hampered in their ability to teach others. So there's always been a tradition of women practitioners, of uh, 
highly realized women, but a very small tradition of women teachers. So this, for instance, is a rebuilt nunnery outside of Lhasa called Kari Nunnery, and all they can do is do prayers. A number of these nuns have fled to India. They were in the original group who came. They study at Domaling. These nuns, uh, these are their relatives. They know they're there. They're delighted they're studying, and they're waiting, wishing they could come back to Tibet to teach them. And as a result of this kind of repression, there have been demonstrations in Tibet, series of them. Uh, they can't demonstrate now, really, without being put in prison immediately, being tortured. This demonstration, and they can't, certainly can't hold up a Tibetan flag. So this demonstration took place in Dharamsala, and this is why people come out for the freedom to, to express their wishes. And the wishes are simple, to study, to have freedom, to see His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Coming out involves uh, a very difficult hike over high passes. You can often get a ride near to the border, but then you have to sneak across a high pass, and that only gets more difficult. Um, Chinese pressure on Nepal has intensified, so people are arrested. People have There was a very um, much-reported shooting that some hikers happened to capture of an, uh, a nun who was shot to death a year and a half ago. When they do get out, they reach Dharamsala, and that's the location of the His Holiness the Dalai Lama's residence. It's the location of the Tibetan government in exile. Um, it's it's overcrowded, but it offers Tibetans, the Tibetans from Tibet, what they haven't. The first thing they get is the chance to see His Holiness, and he makes an effort to meet every new arrival gets a chance to see him, uh, and it's the fulfillment of most people's life wish as they come from Tibet. But then, once they get there, um, many the ones, the nuns and monks in particular, want to stay. And the first group that Rinchen Kandrala was telling you about, um, eventually we came up with this rented house. And we got 88 nuns into that house. Uh, there were 18 in this room in the top right. There, were, uh, there was no kitchen. They just cooked outside on this stove. There was no classroom. We just built kind of a lean-to and covered it over. But we did get a piece of land, and uh, so we were able to start building. We started, this group arrived in late 1990. In 93 was when we were actually able to start building. And the nuns always helped. Uh, we, they carried bricks, they carried gravel, they carried stones. Uh, whatever they could do, they did. And finally, in 1994, we had a housing block, a kitchen, uh, a couple of classrooms finished, and they all moved in. As you can see, the kitchen wasn't quite finished. That's where the gas store was supposed to be. And then they lived in these buildings as we finished building them around them. And uh, this is not the first time we've been to Spirit Rock. Spirit Rock has been very kind to us over the years. And we raised the money building by building, and it took us finally in, 19, in 2005 we were able to dedicate this. Uh, it holds. It can hold 250 nuns. At the moment, it's got 205. The great day in December of 2005 was when His Holiness came to dedicate it, because you never invite him till it's done. So finally, he came. But while we were building it, and while they were helping to build, we were putting in place a study program. And as 
they had come, almost all illiterate, couldn't even write their names. And we have classes in uh, Tibetan language, that's what the bottom left is, in English, which is the top right and bottom right, and in the traditional topics of Buddhist philosophy, which is the area that has was reserved for monks, and without which you, you don't develop the background knowledge, the verbal skills to become teachers. You know, there's this great interest in women teachers, um, which we all share, but it's a, it's a long time process to give people the training so that they can be those women teachers. And one of the important things is debate. This is what really distinguishes the Tibetan Buddhist tradition because it's a very active, engaged form of study that causes you to really think about, to analyze, to, to not just accept something because someone says it's so, but to think about it, to, to look and see if it really holds up, to see if the teachings fit together. And it's been a tremendous training for the nuns who were trained to be very meek and quiet, and now they have to take space. They have to stand up, they have to have a point, hold it, argue it. And it's a, it's a daily event. They debate often twice a day. In the, they have a class in the morning where they learn the material and then they debate it in the afternoon and often again in the evening. And it's fascinating. They debate by class to watch. The earlier classes are so diffident and kind of have an idea and then run out of ideas. And that's why they're in groups because it kind of helps to get more people going on it. And then year by year they get more confident and just more engaged, more energetic. Also, there are many things that the nuns didn't do, but it wasn't because they couldn't or shouldn't, but just because no one had taught them. And sand mandalas is one thing. And so now the nuns, have, a group of our nuns have learned to do sand mandalas. Computers, um, <laughs> like them or, or hate them, they're a necessary part of the world now, and the nuns have learned to use them as well. Uh, we've even uh, started doing training them to do video and photography. For years, we've always taken these pictures and we come around. Uh, two years ago, we gave each nunnery a camera and some training, and now they're taking the pictures. And we've produced a calendar now for about 10 years. This year's calendar is the first one with all of the pictures taken by the nuns. And it's got such a different feel. The immediacy when it's, you know, it's not a stranger coming in and taking their picture, but they're, they're photographing each other. And we've put in place self-sufficiency programs. Some of them are going to go on and be geishis, and, which is like a Western PhD, but not all of them are going to that level. So some of our projects are uh, that kind of employment, but also just training them to do the things they need to do. The nuns make uh, handmade paper and write cards to their sponsors with that. Uh, they string beads and then bless them, and these are one of the things that we sell. And so they've taken on, as, as the years have gone by, they're taking on the running of their own institution. And this is one of the reasons why the nunneries lag so far behind. It's not just study and intellectual knowledge, it's administrative knowledge, it's knowing how to organize. So now the photocopier is run by one of the nuns. The nun in the top left is working in the Domaling academic office, typing exams and managing the grades. Uh, the bottom left is running a small shop where they, the nuns come to their own shop to buy soap and toothpaste and all those kinds of things. And the bottom right is a little, um, mostly it's a, a long-distance phone booth, and actually they can sometimes even call their relatives in Tibet now, and there's also a little cyber cafe attached to it. 
And um, environmental awareness has been an important part of what we've done. And so we have the water that we use is actually irrigation water that we um, run through a drainage system and then chlorinate. We, we recycle the trash, and it's, a, it's quite a messy process, but this is all the accumulated plastic and metal being sorted. Uh, some of it is sold. The plastic these days goes to the Indian government for road work. Uh, there's gardening that happens. So they've become really um, aware custodians of their environment. So this is Domaling now. And so that was, that was our, our uh, that's, that's that 20 years of work. And, and it's the non-sectarian nunnery. As Rinchen Kanola mentioned, the other nunnery we entirely support is Shuksep Nunnery, which is of the Nyingma tradition. This is Shuksep in Tibet, very well-known nunnery. And, and Shuksep Jetsuma was one of the most famous teachers of the late 19th, early 20th century. And again, there is the housing that they, this is current housing in Tibet. It's quite easy because a family just comes and helps a nun build a little hut, and then she's got a place to live. Um, when they get to India, it's quite a different story. And for years, we had, actually, these buildings were nice, quite nice in, in the early 1990s, but they were built into the hillside. and. And they would have been fine for 20 nuns, which is what we started with. But when they got up to 60 or 70, um, it was very crowded. Bit by bit, the buildings got damp and moldy. And um, we had two teachers' housings that was kind of Quonset huts. This other house had probably 25 people in it. It's difficult to, it was difficult to find a site. It's difficult to get permission to buy land. And so the nuns endured really difficult living conditions. That was the kitchen. Uh, the road washed out, so everything had to be carried on someone's back half a mile. Washing up facilities were hard. Uh, but they are famed. This, this nunnery is really known for its ritual practices, and they have traditions that go back to the 11th century. That was always maintained. And they, too, had a study program. Uh, early on, Panor Rinpoche from Namdroling Monastery in South India accepted the responsibility of providing two teachers every year. So they've had teachers right from the start. And so even in those difficult conditions, uh, the first group um, completed the nine years of study that get them the Loburn degree, which is the same degree the monks get. And so um, they're well on their way to being able to be fully qualified teachers in their own tradition. But we were finally able to get a piece of land and to start construction so that they, too, would have decent housing. We got that permission actually just days before we, the dedication of Domaling, our, our initial project. We got the permission to start the construction of Shuksep. So that started in January of 2006. And as we started it, we had accumulated enough funding for one phase. And we were preparing to do the same thing of building it one building at a time as we could fund it. And then, and we were able to move the nuns in in January, in May of 2008. So they, it was only two years before they could move into those buildings. And we had, in the meantime, gotten very lucky in that a generous donor from Marin County had taken on the rest of the construction. And so we were able to just move ahead. And um, the building on the right is additional housing. We had one, the one that's painted was that first housing block, and then we were able to build the next two. The uh, left side shows you what became the office and a clinic, infirmary, and guest house. And the bottom left is the temple. 
and then the flooring inside, which was just being finished at that point. Actually, these yeah, these pictures were taken in late 2009. The nuns moved in, and they're all settled in, and that was one of our early group shots. And now it's finished. And uh, that's an amazing shot, actually, that you'll never see. Uh, the nun who took this picture somehow climbed up the side of a mountain and got just the most amazing overview. And what you see around it, the smaller houses, are the Indian village. And one of the things that's been a kind of a byproduct of our work building these nunneries is that we've used local, local labor. And both at Domaling and Chuksep, we had to put in a road, which was the first motorable road for the village as well. So then that's opened up a lot of opportunities for them and chances to build better houses and to drive the taxis of the people going up and down the road and shops. So it's, it has spilled over into the local community, and we have very good relations with our local communities. That one right now has about 60 nuns. It can hold 108 when it's full. And so this, this December, uh, only five years later, we're going to be doing the dedication of Shuksep Nunnery. And again, His Holiness the Dalai Lama will come to do that dedication. So it's a, it's a great thrill. And it's, it's actually, you know, it, as we do it day by day, it seems a long time. But when we step back, to have been able to do this in 20 years, and it's been through the, the kindness and support of so many donors, but, and, and also through the, the determination and spirit of the nuns and their, you know, their enthusiasm for study and determination to, to be a part of this process. Along the way, we've also helped other nunneries. We have a sponsorship program that supports about 700 nuns total, and so we've reached out to the other nunneries in the area. Gandanchuling is the Geluk a nunnery in Dharamsala, the oldest nunnery in Dharamsala, and we've been able to encourage them to put in place a study program. And so they really had was, didn't have much of a study program, but now they have a full-fledged um, study in the same thing, the philosophical study, English, Tibetan. Um, now they have a computer room and a library, and it's one of those interesting effects of... Um, the competitive spirit, you know, one group gets it, then the other, suddenly this is an idea that other people want. And with study, that's been really helpful, because as the standard comes up, people see that it's possible, and then more and more nunneries have started study programs. This is Talokpur Nunnery, which is Kagyu. And again, um, it's the oldest nunnery in the area. It was founded in the early 70s, but had no study program, and slowly but surely is putting one in place. So now they have classes. We started with English and Tibetan, and now they have a teacher of Buddhist philosophy as well. And the Sakya tradition didn't have a nunnery for a long time. Then they started a nunnery, and now they finally, uh, in the last year and a half, have gotten a nuns institute underway. And they will have the same, within this institute, the same course of study as the monks have in the Sakya but was always just called Sakya College, but it meant the Sakya Monks College. And so they have uh, kind of Quonset Hut classrooms, and they have two teachers. And um, one of the other things we do is we sponsor teacher salaries over and beyond sponsorship, um, different places, remote nunneries. Sometimes nunneries just want to get something going, and so we've been able to give a teacher's salary. And more and more remote nunneries are reaching out to us and asking for help. This one is in Spiti, 
which is a remote area of Himachal Pradesh, where sp we find also have taken on a nunnery in Zanskar. So the whole idea of study is catching on. And in these areas, they are not refugees from Tibet. These are people who are ethnically uh, Tibetan, but have been under India for a long time. Uh, their religion is Tibetan Buddhism. And in those areas, there is some education, but people have tended to stop with the girls at class five. The boys get to go on through high school and maybe to college, but the girls, they usually think fifth grade's about far enough. And so the nunneries, too, have just not had study programs, but slowly that, too, is starting to change. So that's, I, I think, the key. When you want to change things for women, we've felt very strongly that education is the key because that's what gives the women the self-confidence to stand up for their rights. Uh, on the teaching side, it's what enables them to have the, you know, the verbal skills and ability to teach for instance, regarding the bhikshuni ordination question, um, until recently the nuns uh, couldn't really, it's a complicated topic, and the arguments that are put up against it by the monks who oppose it are very um, fancy arguments based on sophisticated use of terminology and knowledge of the vinaya, the monastic rules, and the nuns, not having studied that, couldn't argue it. So they would, you know, you'd, they'd bring up the question and then somebody would really quickly say the spiel about why this wasn't possible and they'd have to go kind of, well, okay, if you say so. Now they can argue back. So that's really changing the course of the conversation. So this again is Dr. Betsy Knapper who's been doing this for years. And it's almost 9.15 and we promised people to try to end on time. So I want to say a couple of things as we get ready to, to end, and then we'll do a little chant. The first is that what you see is the future of Tibet, when you see these women in the, in the nunneries and the spirit that um, Betsy and Rinchen Kandala have, have supported over these years. Um, this is the light of the Dharma that's going to be carried into generations ahead. And what I'd like us to do as a way of honoring what they've done is a very simple chant. And then even as you are going out, those of you who are trying to get out to your cars, there are baskets. Please make donations to support the nuns, to support the, the monasteries, the, these nunneries that have been built, um, and these projects, because it is the future of Tibet, and it's really the future of the Dharma. Um, so the chant, which is a very simple one in India, when you meet someone the greeting is namaste, which means I honor the divine within you, or I see you, see the spirit you carry. And the root of that word namo in Sanskrit means to bow to or to honor. And I'd simply like us to chant namo nine times. And as we do, you can offer your respects to the nuns and the, the spirit that they carry and to all the work that's been done by these two amazing supporters uh, and visionaries um, and as you chant Namo, you can also feel what else it is that you want to bow to, to the spirit of the Tibetan people, to the spirit of people everywhere who are carrying a kind of integrity um, and dignity and compassion and for yourself in that same way. So, Namo
add harmony. Na mo na spirit of mindfulness and compassion as you sit and walk and stand and lie down, as you carry the spirit of the temple into the marketplace and the inspiration that you've seen this evening. Um, as you leave, there are baskets. Please, if you can in any way, make smaller, even better, large contributions to feed these women who are the light of the Dharma and the light of Tibet. It's a beautiful thing. Or leave your name and, and address if you're interested in being more involved and supporting. Last thing is that there are two people who needs rides. There's someone who needs a ride. I think they both need rides to San Francisco. Is there someone who can give a couple of rides into the city? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.